Episode 151 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the wonderful American singer Gwen Dickey, who was lead vocalist of the soul R&B group Rose Royce when they had huge worldwide hits in the late 1970s, including Car Wash, Wishing on a Star and Love Don't Live Here Anymore. She left the band in 1980 and then left the US for the UK. Between June 17th and July the 31st, Gwen will be back with Rose Royce for a final reunion tour of Britain. Then, from September 4th until October 4th, she will join other top artists on a Giants of Soul series of shows. After that, she will move back to the United States to be closer to her family. This interview took place in April 2022, and I began by asking Gwen which singers were her idols when she was growing up in Biloxi, Mississippi. I mean, music was just something that was, if I heard something, it would automatically just stick into my head. And the only person that I could think of off the top of my head would be Gladys Knight. Oh, yes, brilliant singer, yes. At what age did you first perform in public? Where was that? What did you sing? And how was it received? Well, my first experience of singing in public, I mean, I used to sing in the quiet church, but my first public appearance was one day in assembly with a friend of mine. His name was Sherman, and the uh, choir director at assembly tomorrow, you and Sherman are going to lead the song, Oh, Happy Day. I'm like, I'm not getting in front of people singing. I, I can't sing. He said, well, if you flunk this class, then you're going to have to repeat this grade. And I went, oh, my God, my mother is going to kill me <laughs> if I have to repeat a class because I don't, uh, I flunk choir. I mean, who flunks choir? <laughs> how, can you, how can you not pass choir? So I went, all right, then. So Sherman and I, you know, we would rehearse with Mr. McDaniel, the choir director. So we went to assembly the other day, and when I started singing, the whole place just erupted. I mean, when I finished singing, there was a standing ovation teachers, principal, everybody. And I'm looking at Sherman, going, oh, what is going on here? Because my mother came because I said, oh, I've got to sing with Sherman at assembly. So she was there as well. And when we finished and we left the stage, I mean, it was like Elvis Presley was in the building. They just surrounded me and they were going, oh my God, you were amazing. You have such a beautiful voice. I'm like, well, I'm looking at my mother like, are they talking about me? <laughs> so, so that's kind of how it started. Gosh. And when you sang more and more, did it really affect your schooling? No, because at the time I only sang in church. Because my, my mother was very much against me even considering singing. And my father said, well, singing is not a real job. You know, being a doctor or, you know, a scientist, those, those are real jobs. <laughs> so, so they were kind of sort of against me even considering singing. Not that I ever wanted to be a singer. I just sung in church because all my friends from school were in, in the choir church. But when you did become a successful singer, did your parents then turn to you and say, gosh, we're so glad you did. Ignore our advice. Well, when I first started singing, when I went to uh, University of Miami, I met one day in the student union the late uh, Betty Wright. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Betty Wright. Heard the name, and, yeah. Right. She heard me singing one day. She goes, oh, my God, you've got a fantastic voice. She goes, I want you to come with me to my recording studio and meet my producers. And one thing led to another, and they said, oh, we have this group called Friday and Saturday, and we've been auditioning girls to be Sunday. And I said, well, my father's a minister. They said, so you're perfect. You can sing, you're pretty. 
and your father's a minister, so that's kind of how singing started. And then my parents, when they found out that I was singing in nightclubs, they go, we're not paying for you to go to college to stand on tables and sing in nightclubs. I'm like, I'm not standing on tables, I'm on stage. They say, well, you're not on stage anymore. You need to study and focus on graduating from university. So eventually I got fed up with it and I just quit. And they said, well, we're not, we're not going to support you anymore, so hopefully this singing that you think is a great job is going to put food in your mouth because we're not sending you any money. But what I didn't know, because at the time I was living with my older sister in Miami, she and her husband, and my parents were still sending money to her, but she wasn't giving me any. They were trying to, you know, teach me a lesson, but I won because then I got discovered in Rolls Royce. Next thing you know is car wash and the rest is history. Yes. Just to explain briefly how that big break came about, please, Gwen. Well, as I said, I, I was in a group. We were singing throughout Miami. Uh, we opened once for James Brown, which was exciting. Hmm. And... Uh, any big groups that came, we because we were famous in Miami, they were the promoter would always put us on the show. So we became the house band at this club in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. At the time, it was owned by a famous American footballer. His name was Joe Namath, mm -hmm. and he had this really nice club where you know all the posh people hung out, and we were the band. So a guy by the name of uh, Joe Harris, who was in a group called the Undisputed Truth, that was under Norman Whitfield, who wrote you know. Couple with a Rolling Stone, Cloud Nine, Car Wash, and they had performed in Miami. And someone had told them this was the club to go and you know hang out and have a good time. And he had a girl in his group, but this was her last tour because she was getting married, and she and her fiance at the time wanted to start a family. So they were going to start auditioning to replace her when they got back to L.A. But when they saw me on stage in Fort Lauderdale, they went, "This is the girl right here. This is who we're going to replace." the girl with and that's kind of how it started they told Norman Whitfield about me when they got back to LA next thing I know I'm on a plane to LA and I was there for five years <laughs> from the day I landed and next thing I know you know I, I have to have bodyguards I can't walk down the street and uh, we're a famous band <laughs> who came up with the name Rose Royce and did the car company Rolls Royce ever object to it they only objected to it when Norman Whitfield thought that he could use the grill on the front of the Rolls, Rolls R-O-L-L-S, car, and he put that on uh, one of the album covers, and they were mental, so that had to be shut down. But because it was it Rose the Flower, and we represented ourselves in a classy manner, once he polished up the guys, uh, they didn't object to it at all. And how did you feel about being named Rose Norwalt? And how did the rest of the group feel about that? Oh, my God, you talk about World War Three. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I didn't like it because when I told my mother, and I went back to Norman and I said, my mother's very upset. He said, well, your mother's not going to be upset because you're going to be rich and famous. So you tell her you're going to be rich and famous and you're going to be called Rose. I said, I'm, you tell my mother. I said, have you met my mother? I said, my mother was slapping pants <laughs> So he said, just tell her that you're going to be famous and very rich. I went, yeah, okay. I wasn't really happy about it because I had to fight with the guys about it because once car wash, and then I think it was Wishing on a Star, which was the next big hit, mm -hmm. people thought that my name was Rose Royce. Uh -huh. So everywhere we went in the world, people were calling us, shouting, Rose. Hi, Rose. Oh, we love you, Rose. So people, even today, people think that my name is Rose. 
gosh. And is it true you modelled yourself on Diana Ross? I didn't. Norman Whitfield did. <laughs> he modelled you on Diana Ross? Yes. And did you meet Diana? Once. Tell us about that. Well, it was very brief. We were in Vegas, and she was doing a show, and, of course, Norman Whitfield was at Motown, and, of course, she was there. So he said, uh, oh, I'll, I've arranged for you to uh, to meet Diana backstage. So I went backstage, and we had a little, you know, brief little conversation, and she was saying, you know, oh, you you know, you walk like this, and, and you do this, and you do that, and, and, and you're always very elegant on stage. Make sure you're very elegant on stage. And then she touched my face and she said, oh, you're very pretty. Just always be very elegant on stage. Oh. And and that was basically it. Oh. And um, I've seen Rose Royce's music described as soul, funk and R&B. How do you think it should be categorized? The same. Okay, so all those three are correct as far as you're Right, concerned. but over here they call it, uh, what do they call it over here? Disco, that's what they call it. They call it disco. I'm like, what? We weren't disco. No, I wouldn't have thought so. That was other people. We weren't disco. I think I'm right in saying there were nine members of Rose Royce. Did that make it difficult to get good money because it was so widely divided? Or did no. you as the lead singer get the biggest pay packet? Uh, no, I didn't get the biggest pay packet. We were, uh, the money was uh, paid equally. Hmm. But where there's nine of you, that dilutes it a lot, doesn't it, really? Cause if there was well, any... I mean, after, after the car was, you know, the, the money went up. It was rolling in. Yes. What was it like being in a band as the only female among so many men? Oh, my God, I'm surprised I'm still here. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> well, it means that for the first year it was fine, but after the second hit it was, you know, it was, it was tough because they didn't like the fact that I was singled out and the focal point of the group, which was, it wasn't my fault, it's just that that's what you guys did, the press. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I had to live with it, but they, they didn't like it at all, and it was always, uh, always problems. And to what extent did Rose Royce struggle before getting a breakthrough with Car Wash, or was it just very easy? Well, from when I joined, it, it, it was just very easy, but because the guys, because they are from L.A., they had been uh, hanging out and working with Norman for a while while he was auditioning for a lead singer for the group. But when I got discovered and I joined the group, I mean, they were called Total Concept Unlimited until I came on the scene, and then Norman changed it to Rolls Royce. So things were relatively easy. The second album, we had already recorded that album, and that was going to be our very first album when Norman Whitfield was offered to do the soundtrack for the uh, movie Car Wash. But they wanted him to use somebody like The Temptations or someone that was known, and he refused. He said, if I'm doing a soundtrack, I'm using this group. And uh, the rest is history. And both the single and the album Car Wash were number one in the U.S. charts, weren't they? I mean, that must have uh, felt amazing to you. Well, it didn't really resonate with me because, I, you know, I wasn't used to stuff like that. I, I didn't know anything about, you know, being excited about it. I mean, I knew it was a hit. I was excited about that. But the fact that it was in Billboard and all of that, that, that didn't mean anything to me, coming from Biloxi, Mississippi, and Miami. But the guys, it meant a lot to them because they understood what it meant. But it wasn't until probably the second album that I started to understand all of that and what it, what it really meant as an artist. Gwen, why, why weren't you in the official video for the single Car Wash? 
Was there a video? I just found it on YouTube this morning. Antonio Fargas is in the video. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was just for for the movie. None of us were, were in it. Ah, okay. I see. It was just people from the film. Yes. Was there ever any question that you would appear in the car wash film? Yes. I was supposed to play the part of the prostitute, but Norman felt that it didn't fit with the image that he had of me as a, like, a Diana Ross image. And he didn't, uh, he, he said that I couldn't play the part. Did you want to do it? I didn't mind. I was like, fine, yeah, I'll do it. So, were you quite keen to act and maybe be a movie star? No. Why not? Well, it, it just wasn't something that was, that was in my head, you know. I was just, I don't know, I was just having fun. I wasn't thinking about, you know, being famous or being a movie star. And at that time, things weren't, for artists, things weren't like they are now. I mean, I think Diana Ross, when she did Lady Sing the Blues, I mean, other than that, there weren't a lot of opportunities for artists to be in movies unless they were doing the music. Stop. Whereas now, you know, you're doing movies, you're doing television, you're doing everything. Starring in Car Wash was Richard Pryor. What was your experience of him? Well, I didn't really have a one-on-one -on -one experience with him, but I used to go uh, to the set, the Car Wash set with Norman, and, you know, Norman was talking to him one day, and I said hi when he was about to film his scene, Daddy Rich, and he said hi, and, and that was basically it. I didn't really have any personal one-on-one -on -one contact with him. Rose Royce had many hits from the mid-70s to the mid-80s. How hectic was that period for you and the band? And how much were you able to enjoy that time? Well, we, we sort of had to enjoy time as we worked because we would be on the road for like four or five months. We'd go home and we'd have like a couple of weeks off where you'd just be home resting, be glad to have home-cooked food and see friends. And then you'd be straight into the studio recording the next album, and it, it, that was just a cycle for five years. That's how it was. But do you look back now and think, I wish I'd had more time to really savor the success? Um, maybe, yes. It, I wish I would have had more time to savor it. But at the time, you know, you were just in the zone. So you were used to just, you know, studio, you're on the road, at home for a couple of weeks studio on the road so that's how that's how we enjoyed ourselves we didn't get we didn't get to go on holiday to hawaii or or places like that we enjoyed ourselves as we worked i mean the guys would go to norman's house and they'd play basketball and hang out uh, with his niece so that that's basically how we we enjoyed ourselves we'd all watch movies together we were always together and we we did what we did to have fun I think I'm right saying that Wishing on a Star was written for Barbara Streisand, but did she ever record it? No. It wasn't written for her, but she was in the process of doing an album, and the late Billy Ray Calvin, she had written the song, and somehow she got to play it for Barbara, and Barbara liked the song and, and said that she was going to do it on her album. So some time had gone by, and Billy went to Barbara, and she said, Oh, uh, have you recorded wishing on a star yet and she said well billy i've decided i've recorded enough songs and i'm not going to do wishing on a star and of course billy was trying to talk her into it and she said no i'm i'm done i'm not recording any more songs so i'm not going to do wishing on a star wow. so then billy came to norman in floods of tears saying oh bob is going to record wishing on a star and of course <laughs> being 
somewhat arrogant. He said, well, Gwen can sing it better than Barbara anyway. I went, what? I'm crazy. <laughs> but you did. So he, so he said, give, um, because back then you had uh, cassettes. He said, give Gwen, Gwen the cassette. And he said, Gwen, go home and learn this song, and in two days we're going to record it. I took the cassette, and I said to him, I can't sing it better than Bob Streisand. I'm just going to sing it how I sing it. He goes, you can sing better than Bob Streisand. I went, I can't. <laughs> he said, go home and learn the song. And the rest is history. Yes, it certainly is. And what's the story behind Love Don't Live Here anymore? Love Don't Live Here was written by the late Miles Gregory. And at that time, back in the day, when you were in the studio... If someone called on the phone because everything was happening in the control room or in the booth where the guys were playing or I was singing, you couldn't hear the phone ringing. And once the secretary left front of house, nobody even knew the phone was ringing because the music was loud and you couldn't hear it. So he had spent days in the studio with Norman. One thing about Norman, if you go in the studio with Norman at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, then you're coming out the next day probably 4 or 5 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Because he, you know, that's just how he worked, hmm. and he didn't like you to break his vibe. You had to stay there until he said, "Okay, I'm tired. I'm going to bed." If that was three days, you you just found a place to sleep, but you had to stay there. So the late Miles Gregory's wife said to him, "I've called that studio for hours, and nobody has answered the phone. And you're telling me that you you've been in the studio." And he said, "I promise you, we're in the studio." And he explained to her, "Well, we can't hear the phone. Blah blah blah." And she said, well, the next time you go in the studio, when I call, you, you make sure you answer the phone so I'll know that you're actually in the studio. She said, you've been gone since yesterday. And he said, honey, I've been in the studio with Norman. So long story short, it happened again. And uh, when he got home, she had taken all the furniture. She left. She took everything but his clothes. And on the mirror, she wrote, love don't live here anymore. Wow. And his guitar was sitting in front of the mirror he picked it up and sat down in tears and wrote love don't live here anymore and when you first recorded those songs did you know instantly they would be big hits oh god no 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 you you, you didn't know where in the world were rose royce most popular the world all the way around the world yes yeah so presumably america and britain were big markets for you though well, everywhere was big market for us. Right. I mean, people were literally uh, fighting over, you know, <laughs> which, which country we were going to come to. And but even though, uh, like you say, America and Britain were, were big territories for us, but everywhere was equally the same. Of all the concerts and TV shows you performed with the band, which were your highlights? Looking back, for me, I'd have to say Top of the Pops and Soul Train. So who were you on Top of the Pops with? Oh, God, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but why was that such a thrill? Because when I look back, and, I, and occasionally I get to see the video online or on a television show, they'll, they'll play it. It's just magical. I mean, we, we look very classy, and I'm very elegant, as Diana told me to be. <laughs> it's just fantastic. When you left Rose Royce in 1980, was that just to go solo, or were there other reasons? Well, I had had enough of fighting with uh, with eight eight guys on a daily basis. I mean, we would literally be arguing as we were walking on stage. About what? God knows, whatever they thought, you know, because to them, I was I was a star, and mm. they felt that we're all the stars. You're not the star. Okay, jealousy. And, and one one time uh, we sold out Madison Square Garden in like ten minutes, sold it out, 
And uh, they said to the promoter, we're not playing car wash tonight. And he said, are you kidding me? He said, these people will tear this place down if you don't sing car wash. So there was an argument. So the tour manager had to get Norman on the phone, and he's screaming down the phone at them. <laughs> and this was like half an hour before we went on stage at Madison Square Garden. Mm. And then we get on stage, and when it came time to play Wishing on a Star, I had no idea what song it was. I, I was looking at the bass player. I'm like, what song is this? And he screamed at me, just sing. Well, I couldn't sing because I didn't know what song it was. The way they were playing it, I didn't even recognize it. So he started singing it. And I was like, oh, this is Wishing on a Star? <laughs> and the crowd were booing. They were going mental. And so I had to just step in and start, start singing. But I didn't, I didn't have the right music because they weren't playing it like that. So... Gwen, how was being a solo artist compared to what you expected or hoped? Well, being a solo artist, because I was so used to having the guys on stage with me, I had to learn, you know, that it was all on me. I had to carry the show. I had to make it happen and be used to just being on stage with myself. So at first it was it was very hard, very daunting, but now it's second nature to me now. Hmm. And did you stay friends with the Rolls Royce? No. <laughs> because you <laughs> not, had... Not, such... for, not for a while, I didn't. No, we're, we're all right now. Who have been your closest friends in the music business? Uh, Betty Wright, Stevie Wonder, Chaka Khan, Shalimar, lots of people. Tell us about Stevie Wonder, because he's a very special guy, isn't he? Very much so, and such a nice man. Has he given you any advice that you'll never forget? You know, we didn't really talk about music too much. We talk about food, or he would call me on the phone and sing something down the phone. I'm like, listen, I don't have time to listen to this. I'm busy. Call me back. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, we talk about maybe different states, well, something that was going on, or some place, some restaurant he'd been to. We, we didn't really talk about a lot about music. Or he'd say, did you hear so-and-so's new song? You know, we talk about stuff like that. When Jay-Z did a version of Wishing on a Star in the late 90s, how well did you get to know him and what was he like? Well, to be honest with you, I, I didn't get to meet him. I only spoke to him on the phone because at the time I recorded it, he was on tour with Puff Daddy, as he was known then. And I flew to New York and, as I say, I spoke to him on the phone one day, they, they said to me, oh, Jay-Z wants you to stay because he's going to fly back to New York. He wants to meet you. And I said, I can't because I have to go. I have a show. So I recorded my bit, and the next day I came back to London. Ah. And when he came to London, I was in Dubai doing a show. So our paths kept crossing, and I'm sure one day we'll meet. He did a good job, though, didn't he? He did a very good job. And when Christina Aguilera and Missy Elliott did Car Wash, did they seek your advice? No. <laughs> I mean, these ladies have magical voices. They didn't seek my advice. I was I was over the moon with uh, what Missy did. It was, I thought it was fantastic. Yes. And, of course, Christina Aguilera, her vocals are second to none. Hmm. What are your memories of working with James Brown and Meatloaf? Well, my memories of working with James Brown, we, you know, we were, we were young girls just, you know, having fun. And, as I said, promoters would always, because we were so well-known in Miami promoters would most of the time put us on, on, on shows with the big artists as opening acts. So we got to meet him. The promoter took us to the dressing room. We got to meet him and all that stuff about how he liked the guy, the band's shoes had to be a certain way. 
Well, as we were taken into the dressing room where he was, he was having to go at one of the guys. Oh, you can't go on stage with me with your shoes like that, man. You got, you know, you got to see your face in them. You got to see your face in them. I want to see your face in them. You know, get them shoes shined up. And then he turned around and, you know, he was saying, you know, you, you, you got to work hard. You got to work hard. Stay away from them boys and just focus on your music. <laughs> so that was basically it. He was very nice. He smiled a lot. <laughs> and Meatloaf? Meatloaf was very nice. I was uh, very surprised at how kind and, and sweet he was. When I got to watch him on stage, I was intrigued. I was like, oh, my God. Are there any artists you haven't got the chance to work with but have wanted to? Well, at one time I wanted to work with Justin Timberlake. I, I really I really like his voice. And you haven't so, had a chance yet? No, I haven't. I did get to meet him, but I haven't had the... Uh, I, I don't think he's doing any uh, singing at the moment. He might be recording, but I haven't had the opportunity to uh, get a chance to say, oh, let's, let's do a song together. Do you mind, Gwen, explaining how you suffered a serious injury in your home in 2010? Well, what happened was I was getting ready to go on holiday with some friends. We were going to Dubai on holiday. So I had put everything up sort of in the loft, and I had asked my partner at that time to take them down. And every time I'd ask him, he'd say, okay, I'll do it in a minute. So too too much time had gone by, and it was getting close to start packing. So I got on the ladder, and... I tried to get it myself, but because I've never used a ladder, I didn't put it the right way around. I just sort of put it in the middle of the room and tried to get up there, and and it fell, and I fell off. And in my bedroom, there's um, my bed has like a wooden frame around it. Yeah. So when I fell, my spine hit the uh, hit the frame, and I damaged my spine. Wow. And for a while, I was completely paralyzed, which was quite scary. I can walk a bit, but it's best to use the chair. So what did the doctors say your life would be like as a result of that? Well, when I was paralyzed, they said, you know, there's a chance that you won't ever walk again. And I said, yeah, I will. I'm going to walk again. And I'm going to walk in stilettos. And he looked at me and went, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Even to this day when I go for a checkup, I said, I'm still going to come in here with these stilettos on, you know. (laughs) And he said, well, you've been doing good, so I believe you might do that. I said, there's no might. I will do it. And I said, I can walk some. And I, I still have physio, but if I stand up for too long, my legs just sort of give way because of the fluid that was on my spine. It damaged a lot of the nerves. How did it make you feel to have such a dramatic change in your life, a setback? And how did you deal with it? Well, at first I was very depressed. But um, having the, the sweet mother, my late mother that I did, you know, she she said, I'm praying for you. And she'd always, when I talked to her, you know, she would encourage me and and say, you know, life is not over. It's just, it's just different now. You, you have to be strong. You have to, you know, you can't just waddle in and, and, and become so depressed that you can't function anymore. So she constantly talked to me, and eventually I made up my mind. You know, I said, you know what, I'm going to get myself together. I'm going to wear some of those clothes in my wardrobe. I'm going to get out there. I'm getting back to work. And the more I started doing that, the more I, I sort of felt like myself again. I mean, it still gets me down a bit to know that I'm not able to walk and I had to give away like 10 bags of stilettos. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm happy. I, I, you know, I, I do everything I want to do. Have you tried different operations or whatever to make you walk again? It, it won't work because the, uh, the fluid that filled, that filled up in my spine, 
it damages the nerves, so the nerves have to regrow. And nerves in, in your spine, they grow a millimeter a week. And if you think the whole of your spine, there's a nerve throughout the whole of your spine. Hmm. So, and when I said, well, how long is it going to take? And he, the consultant said, well, how long is a piece of string, you know? Nobody can say. And I once said to him, well, if I have surgery, he said, there's no surgery that's going to fix it. It has to fix itself. But you have to continue with physio because if you don't, he said, have you heard the term uh, use it or lose it? And I said, yeah. He said, well, if you don't use your muscles, then you'll never be able to stand up or anything or, or even walk a little bit as you are doing. Because at one point I couldn't even put, you know, pick my feet up off the floor. How close did you come to quitting show business, you know, singing? And well, I didn't, at the time, I didn't, at first I didn't really think about singing. I just, you know, thought about, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm paralyzed. I can't walk, you know, what, what am I going to do? But as I said, because my mother kept encouraging me and pushing me, that's when I decided, you know, I, I, I'm not ready to give up my career. I, you know, I, I want to sing. And even when I go on stage now, I say to people, you know, even though I can't walk on stage and, and stand here and, and, and dance in my stilettos, you know, everything's good. My voice is good. And, you know, I'm, I'm still in the party. How frustrating is it, though, to perform from a wheelchair when for so well, long? I don't, you... I, don't, I don't use a wheelchair. I have a piano stool that I sit on. Okay. And at one point, I had these two muscle guys that would carry me on stage. <laughs> but I had to uh, sort of move them along. Oh. But, you know, it's fine. I sit on a piano stool. And, you know, I, I have to say, I do a good show. People are, you know, they love the show. I've never had any complaints since I've gotten back, you know, to work. And I'm still, people are still booking me to come and perform. Yeah. So you haven't ever sort of said, why me? Well, I did. But, you know, I didn't get an answer. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, it's like Steve's Wonder being born blind, you know. Why me? You know, it's just it's just life. It's just something that just happened. And you just, you deal, you sink or swim, basically. Has Stevie talked to you about your disability? No. May we know if you're married and have children and who looks after you? Uh, none of the above and uh, none of your busy. <laughs> oh, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> was that a Will Smith slap in the face? <laughs> oh, I knew that one would get you. <laughs> and have you ever met Phil Collins? No. Because recently ill health has forced him to perform while seated. I wondered if that's made you want to reach out to him with words of support. No, but I would like to, now that you've mentioned it, because I saw on the news the other day, I think they've just performed their final show. They're never going to perform again. Yes, but it's very sad to see him going from, you know... Yes. I, I think mentally he he appears not to be strong enough to, to fight it mentally, and he let it sort of take over his mind. If you know what I mean. If you, if you don't fight, even though you have this... You're not as you were, but if you don't fight in your mind, then it just takes over and it just it just takes you downhill. Because you clearly have a tremendous attitude towards what's happened to you. What would you say to Phil if you could? I would say to him, you know, you can't give up. And even though you have to sit on a stool now, you're still Phil Collins that people love and adore and you still have amazing classic songs out there and people still want to see you perform yeah you know don't don't let this 
don't let this take you out. You know, still get up every day and live your life and get back on stage and perform. Because when you go home and you sit down and you're doing nothing, then eventually you're gone. No, you'll I, be gone. Because you'll just go down and down and down until eventually, you know, you'll be dead. And it's, and it's not fair to you, your family, or your fans. Many artists have now had stage shows created around their back catalogue of hits. Has a Rose Royce or Gwen Dickey musical ever been suggested or planned? Well, to my knowledge, there there was one that was out in the States. I, I had a few people who saw it, and and they said it was very nice, but I think something happened with the financial backer, and it sort of went down the drain. But, you know, if, if someone wants to do it, you know, good luck to them. I, I, I would support it 100%. And what about a movie of your life? Because you're having an oh, extraordinary... Oh, yeah, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> let's have a movie of my life. I have to start thinking who I want to portray me, though. Go on. Suggest. I don't know. I have, I have to think about it. Mm -hmm. What chance of us seeing you as a judge on a TV talent show or something like that? Mm, I don't know. It would be something I would, I would have to really think about. What do you think of those TV talent shows? Some of them are enjoyable. Some of them I find quite boring. <laughs> no, and I think some of them are exploiting people who they know really, you know, won't ever maybe succeed in, 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 in their acting or singing, whatever they're trying to do. Magician, juggler, you know. I think they're just doing it to, you know, for the television and themselves to make money. May we know the extent to which you've been subjected to racism in your life and career? To be honest with you, I have not experienced it. Only one time when uh, the guys and I were on tour and we stopped at this restaurant, we were on our way, I think we were leaving New York or something, and the bus driver and our security guy said that, well, you guys call them coaches, that our customized coach needed to, to be cleaned and, and freshed and the 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 tank needed to be emptied and clean so we were going to stop and there was a restaurant where we could get some food and just hang out and uh when we walked in you know wearing meat coats and have diamond rings on and diamond earrings the the, the people that were there the white people that were in there said we weren't welcome in there and they asked us to leave and and of course some of the guys said you know we're not leaving we got money, and they start pulling all this money out, and, and the next thing you know, there's police, and we were called the N-word and escorted out the building. God, it must break your heart when that sort of thing happens. Oh, my God, it was, uh, I mean, we were furious because we didn't do anything. You know, we didn't go in there being disruptive. We just walked in there thinking that, you know, we can get steak and eggs and, and have a giggle while we wait for our very expensive customized coach to, you know, to get cleaned and freshed and washed but in in the end we we were left standing outside <laughs> because we, we weren't allowed to go in Norman Whitfield wouldn't allow it to be put in the press because he thought maybe you know when we we're out there if we had to pass that way again you know they might they might do something to us oh, goodness and as you'll be aware, in recent years, many women from show business have come forward and said that they were taken advantage of by men in their early years in the business. Did you have any kind of Me Too experiences? No, because uh, the late Norman Whitfield, from the moment I arrived in L.A., I was sort of under his, his wing, 
and uh, nothing. I never experienced anything like that. I mean, we used to hear about um, the casting couch, you know, for for actors. But me personally, I I never experienced anything like that. Nor did I ever meet anyone who was subjected to the casting couch. Mm, good. But how have you felt about the sexualization of young female music stars with raunchy outfits, dance routines, and lyrics in recent years? Well, me personally, I, I don't think you're, you're representing yourself in a way that if something did happen or something was said, it's because you've put yourself out there like that. Not that it should happen. You should be able, as a woman, to wear whatever you choose. But because you're putting yourself out there like that, then you're opening the door for these things to be said or hopefully not what happened. And I don't think, I mean, for me, if you've got talent, you know, you don't, you don't need to show your breasts. You don't need to have on a dress that, that can see your nether regions, you, you know, because people want to hear you sing. Yeah. They're not coming to, to look at your body, but if that's how the artists choose to dress, you know, good on them, but I, I, I don't agree with it at all. Because sometimes it's to cover up from just not very good material, so they just... Thank you. <laughs> I remember I, I read this article once that uh, Muhammad Ali... His daughter was about, she was going out the door, and he stopped her, and he said, come and sit down, let me talk to you. And he said, uh, do you know how hard it is to find diamonds? He said, they have to dig for them. You don't just walk in the store and see them. He said, diamonds are hard to find. So I think you should carry yourself like one of those diamonds that you have to dig for. You don't put it out there on a the plate. And I thought that I, I like that. I mean, I didn't you know, verbalize it the way he actually said it, but that was the gist of what he was saying to her. You know, don't don't walk out the door wearing clothes like that. You know, you're a diamond. They have to really dig down for diamonds. That's how that's how they get them. Which do you rate of today's pop music and artists and which are you not so keen on? Which artist do I rate? Yes, today. Mm. That's a difficult question because some I like and some I don't. You know, I feel that they're doing the music that works for them. I don't rate it as being music that you'll be hearing five years from now. Yeah, I agree. It's, uh, it's kind of like some, some throwaway music. You hear it now, and then two or three years from now, you hear it and you were like, well, I don't even remember that song. Who, who's that? <laughs> what kind of music? You know, that, that's kind of how I feel about it. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, why do you think so many people prefer listening to music from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s today? Because it, it's real music, it, it it has, it's saying something. The music is captivating. It's it's not something when you hear it, you turn the radio down, you turn it up, or yeah. or if you're playing it at home, you turn it up because it it draws you in. It, mm. it it's like having a, a delicious plate of food as opposed to something you cook that's not so good. Mm. To what extent are you recognised out and about these days? Thank God, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God for that, because that, I tell you, that that's that's a hard life. You know, it's very hard. But people, when I say my name, people people recognize the name. But thank God they don't recognize the face so much these days. I mean, some people do, but it's 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 not uh, like it used to be, and I love it. <laughs> I can go anywhere, I can do anything, and unless I say my name, people have no idea who I am. What's so hard about being recognized? I mean, loads of young people aspire to being recognized. Well, that's because, you know, that's, that's what they think being famous is all about. 
being in the magazines and, you know, walking down the street and having photographers snapping their pictures. But it's very difficult, you know, to to have someone, you know, in your face every minute, calling your name every minute. Every time you walk out of the, the house, you've got to look. I mean, I could go out of my house in my pajamas. Nobody, nobody's <laughs> even going to care about it. But if people recognize you, you have to look a certain way every time you leave your house. And, you know, it's it, it's a tough life. It really is. It's like being on show all the time. When you meet people who don't know you and you explain that you're a singer, do they ask, anything we know? Oh, yeah, I've had that several times. And then when I say the song, that their mouths jump open. They're like, that's you? <laughs> and I went, yes. I remember once I was I was on a flight going home. Not, not sort of bragging, but I'm sitting in first class. I'm drinking a glass of champagne. And this lady is sitting next to me, and she's tapping, 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 and she's shaking her head. So I'm like, oh, let me check, make sure, you know, she's like <laughs> getting ready to go into some mental breakdown or something. So I sort of turned to her, and I go, Miss, are you okay? And she said, yes, I'm trying to um, come up with a song to play at my wedding, which is happening next month. She said, and the song I want desperately to be played at my wedding, my fiance is, is totally against it. She goes... And it is my favorite song in the whole world. So I said, well, what's the name of the song? And she said, have you ever heard of Rose Royce? So by then I'm suddenly choked. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yes. She said, I want desperately to have Love Don't Live Here. And well, I nearly passed out when she said it. I'm like, somebody on this plane told this lady who I am to sitting next to her. But I could tell the way that she was carrying on that she didn't know who I was. God. And I said, yes, I'm very familiar with that song. So I said to her, what would you say if I told you I'm Rose Royce and I sung that song? She goes, I wouldn't believe you. I said, good. <laughs> I said, well, choose another song because you don't want Love Don't Live Anymore to be, you know, that's not the song you want to dance to on your wedding day, you know. What about Wishing on a Star? She said, yeah, but Love Don't Live Anymore is my favorite song in the whole world. And she said, well, you know, I'm a, I, I'm a heart surgeon. I said, you are? Well, you don't want somebody operating on your heart if you play Love Don't Live Anymore at your wedding. I'll never forget that. That was crazy. Please tell me that you did sing at her wedding. No, she didn't ask. She didn't believe me. And I didn't sing to her. I'm like, I'm not going to be sitting on the plane singing to this lady to prove to her who I am. But it just it just literally floored me. I couldn't believe it. Wow. And as soon as she said Rose Royce, I had a little bit of pain in my mouth, but I literally started to choke out. And to find out she was a heart surgeon, I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> God. And how satisfied are you with your career so far, Gwen? Immensely. You should be. I, I, I'm very proud because, not to brag, but there are not many artists can say that the very first record they sung in their career was, first of all, it was on a soundtrack to a film now that is a classic and their first single was triple platinum around the world. I mean, that is quite a feat. Oh, yes. I mean, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't plan for that even if you tried. How is your singing voice now compared to the heyday of Rose Royce, and how have you kept it strong? Well, the only difference is as you get older, you, of course, your, your voice changed. I mean, I've had to lower the keys, but, golly, my voice is superb. <laughs> <laughs> well, it always was. <laughs> I mean, people People say to me, I can't believe you sound exactly like the record. I'm like, that's because I sound the record. I am very blessed. My voice is, as I said, my voice is superb. I sound just like I did all those years ago. Not so, you know, youngish. But my voice, I hit every note. 
and it, and it's fine. Gosh, because love don't live here. That's got some serious uh, high notes, yeah, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, I try to put that down a, a bit lower in the show once I've sung a few songs to get my voice really, you know, pumped up. I hit all the notes. And uh, over the decades, how have you thought about retirement, and how has that changed as you've got older? You sound like my sister. She goes, shouldn't you retire now? I'm not going to retire. They're going to pick my body up off the stage. <laughs> uh, so you're going you're to bop to the drop, are you? Exactly. I don't even think about retiring. I'm having fun. I'm enjoying myself. Other than my legs, you know, I'm healthy. I just had my body just had a, an MOT. I passed with fine colors. Other than my leg, I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have diabetes, you know. I don't have anything like that. I eat healthily. And I, I'm good. Lots of water. Yeah, me too. Good for you. And I was going to ask you what you think you'd do if you did stop performing. But do you have any interests outside music? Do you write songs, for instance? Yes, I do. I've been I've been writing with my uh, writing partner in, in L.A. We're thinking about uh, going in the studio and um, putting some things down. At one point, I had several properties, but I, I just got fed up with all that. It was just always my phone was ringing, oh, this, oh, that, oh, that. And I just said, you know what, I'm going to sell them all and forget about it. So basically, I don't do anything. And I was going to ask you if you'll always live in the UK, but you're moving back to the States for good, yeah? October. And how do you feel about that? Are you going to miss us? Uh, very much so. But, I'll, be, you know, I'll, periodically I'll come over to do shows or come over to, to visit just to get some London, Londonists. <laughs> but I'm excited, I, I, you know, to be with my family to live where I can see the sun shining every day, not every blue moon, no snow. I, I, I'm very excited. What chance of you writing an autobiography in due course? I've had uh, several offers over the years. Uh, who knows? Maybe maybe next year I'll think about it. I don't feel that, you know, I, I want to talk about lots of things. I want to just keep them to myself, but who knows? We'll see. Yeah. I might change my mind. Do you hope to live to a very old age? I'm going to. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love your attitude. <laughs> I was looking on Facebook last night, and this lady was ce celebrating her 122nd birthday. I'm like, that's going to be me. Oh, good for you. And you'll still be singing, I bet. No, I won't be singing, but I'll, I'll make it to 122. <laughs> <laughs> that would be brilliant. And how would you like people to remember you after you do eventually leave this planet? I'd like them to remember the music that I gave to the world. And those that know me personally to know that, you know, I was a good person. I was a, a, a good human being. I cared about humanity. And if I was needed, I tried to do my best to be supportive in whatever way possible.